We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. The book of Revelation is somewhat of a mystery in its details, but it need not be a mystery in its overall picture. And if you can keep this in your mind, it helps. When the book of Revelation was written, Christians were getting getting their teeth kicked in. And if you can think of it in this way, it helps. Revelation is a comic book that says God wins. It lifts the physical stress that people were going through to a cosmic level. That's what comic books do. It's not just this guy and that guy fighting. It's the fate of the universe hangs in the balance, all right? So when Revelation describes the birth of Christ, it's a woman given birth and a dragon whose tail sweeps away a third of the stars waiting to devour the child. Well, the same story in Luke's hands is there's a king trying to kill a baby. Do you see what what John the Revelator has done? He's taken the same story and he's lifted it. It's called apocalypticism or in our day, comic book. Now, I don't mean by that it's not true. I mean, it's it's recognizing a cosmic battle is at stake. Now, Christians, from all apparent evidence, were losing. And when we read Revelation 18, this is critical to reading it. For one thing, Christian businessmen were being picked on and overlooked because they refused to go along with prostitutes. And you could not be in a trade association if you would not, in that culture, spend time in prostitution with a prostitute. So as a result, this was life or death for Christian businessmen. He was excluded from the trade associations. As a result, he couldn't make it. Furthermore, Christians in general were being looked down upon in this society just for being Christian. They were being accused of things like being cannibals because every Sunday they get together and they eat the body of Christ and drink his blood. Thirdly, the government was entering into a time of formalized, systematic pogroms. This is what Germany did to Jews. The government was officially ramping up and beginning The persecution of Christians, beating them, taking their property, putting them in prison, sending them to exile, killing them. So needless to say, Christians were facing a very rough time. And as a result, it was getting very easy for Christians to check out of the game. And the book of Revelation is God saying, hang in there. Let me show you what this looks like when you can unzip the physical reality that you think is the ultimate reality, God is saying, let me, sh- let me unzip this dimension and let me show you what is really going on and that I'm going to win. Don't give up. Don't lose sight of what's true. Remember, I am the king and I will be victorious. I know where this whole thing is headed. Now, one more thing. In Revelation, all of the pressures that this world puts on those who claim the name of Christ, all of the pressures that this world 
uses to pull you away from loving Christ with all of your heart and all of your soul, all of your mind and all of your strength. In the book of Revelation, all of those pressures are given a name, Babylon. Babylon in this book is a metaphor for the mechanisms of this world that are working to take the heart of Christians away from Christ. Now, sometimes when you're reading something like this, it helps to get a sense of the big picture. So before we walk through the whole chapter of Revelation 18, let me just give you the three basic movements that happen in Revelation 18. First of all, part one. Part one begins in verse one and goes to verse three. If you like to write in your Bible, draw a little line there or in your neighbor's Bible if you don't want to write in yours. Then from verse four to verse 20, that's part two. And then from verse 21 to verse 24, that's the third section of the chapter. Now, part one, verses one to three, this is an angel mocking Babylon, not the city of Babylon, but the whole system of this world that conspires against God. There's an angel that's mocking her saying, you are going to be destroyed. You think you're winning, but you're not. Part two shows us how Babylon, how this world responds to the destruction that she's about to face. Part three is another angel mocking Babylon once more, taunting her that she's met her match and that God will destroy her. So think about the chapter in this way. Part one, verses one to three. Part three, verse 21 to 24. The smallest parts of the chapter, they're, they're frames around the chapter. And the frame of the chapter is God is king and your days are numbered. In the middle of the chapter is the world's response to that. Now let's dive in. Let's look at Revelation chapter 18, verse 1 to 3. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Now, in these three verses, we see that there is a part of this world that is evil. Now, we don't that's not politically correct to say in our day. But in these three verses, it is it is unequivocable there is evil in this world and this is an evil that tempts a person to stop loving Jesus all of these elements in our world all of these elements that distract you they are part of a system that is evil all the lies all the worldly philosophies all the false religions all the stresses and pressures that constantly lure you away from a deep, intimate friendship, loving relationship with God, your creator. All of that is going to be destroyed. There will be a day when it will not be so hard to be faithful to God. And everything that makes it hard to be faithful to God is evil. 
That's the first thing. The second thing you need to see here is that when Revelation uses the city of Babylon to represent all of those forces in our world that take us away from God, then we learn something very important. In verse 2, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt. Not after the fall has she become this. Saying, fallen is she, why? Because of which she's become, okay? Fallen is Babylon the great. Why? Because she has become, what? A dwelling place for demons. A haunt for every unclean spirit. A haunt for... Now, what we learn here is that all of this evil in the world that pulls you away from God is demonic. It's demonic. Now look, in, in kind of fundamentalism, Christians like to think that the whole demon issue is a demon. In liberalism, the whole demon issue, no, it's not an actual demon, it's a system. And what we're seeing here is that both are right. That demons can so infect a city that the whole system becomes demonic. That these forces that allure us and draw us away. And by name, at the time of this writing, Rome was a big city. And John the Revelator is saying, Rome has become so infiltrated by this kind of spiritual evil that Rome itself is the haunt of demons. So here we have a, we see that a, a, a city or even a whole country, can so embrace anti-God forces that it becomes so bad, it is basically the embodiment as a nation, as a city, as a neighborhood. It is the embodiment of evil. That's what happened here. Babylon represents worldliness, and Rome has so embraced worldliness that Rome as, a, as an entity is against God and his kingdom. It has become the embodiment of the spirit of Babylon. Now look again at verse 2. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. In other words, God has judged and condemned this city, Rome, this nation. Because this nation has become Babylon. This nation has drunk so deeply of these anti-God forces. And look, it's one thing for you and I to hear this phrase, fallen, fallen is Rome, looking back. But can you imagine hearing that phrase when the might of Rome was unquestioned? I heard a preacher talking about this passage once and he was talking how all these things in the world that pull you and I away from Christ, they are living on borrowed time. They've already been judged. I mean, right at the height of Rome, fallen, fallen is Rome. That was a pronouncement that hadn't taken effect yet. And he said, look, it's sort of like a building that has been condemned. And the notices are on the doors and the windows, but the wrecking ball hasn't shown up yet. But it's coming. It may be just a few miles away and nobody can see it, but it's coming. It's coming slowly down the freeway. Surely the wrecking ball is coming and that building is going down. And in the same way, Rome is condemned. 
And even though she is not hurting right now, and even though right now Rome is so powerful, Christian, she is ruining your life, even though it looks like you're losing and she's winning, rest assured, all of the evil forces that are destroying your life are doomed under the condemnation of God. Why? Because he's the king. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Everything that conspires against you is fallen. Look at verse 3. Three reasons Babylon is going to be destroyed. Verse, the first part of verse 3. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The first reason God is going to destroy Babylon is because Babylon is sexually immoral in such a way he's corrupted others. Number two, verse three, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And then the third thing in the last part of verse three, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from her from the power of her luxurious living. All three of these reasons, the basic point is that Babylon is a corrupting influence. Rome has become a corrupting influence on the rest of the world. She has corrupted nations and kings and merchants. And her two primary exports are immorality and economic injustice. And that's clear in verse 3, right? For the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Last of it, the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Now, depending on which side of the Christian tradition you come from, you like to major on one of those things, right? At the time this was written, Rome was the big kid on the block. She was running the show and had been for centuries. But John is saying, despite all of that, despite all of the good that Rome has given to this world, despite all of the incredible benefits Rome has exported, what she has really given the world is corruption. Rome was immoral. She exported immorality like America exports, you know, I don't know, movies or music. Everywhere her soldiers went, everywhere her businessmen went, everywhere her politicians went, they carried a corrupt and contagious immorality with them. And guess what? The countries they showed up in caught the bug. And because of that, fallen, fallen is Rome. Why? Because this is my father's world. And he's the king of it. And he will not allow that. And then in the middle of verse 3, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. Here we're told that the leaders of all these nations that Rome has come into contact with, they've jumped into bed with Rome. Basically, Rome was rich. And if you can cozy up to Rome, you can be rich too. The people who were really benefiting from Rome's flourishing economic society were the kings of the earth. The governors, the local council, the whole system was milking the cow. Rome was paying off enough people so that those who were at the top of the system got the most luxuries. And you know who was getting nothing out of it? Except more and more heartache, more and more poverty. It was the common person. Throw a few crumbs down the table and keep those at the head of the table in the head of the table. Now look down at verses 9 and 10. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of torment and say, alas, alas, 
You great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour, your judgment has come. The political leaders will not like it when Rome falls. Why? Because their cash cow died. That's what the passages say. Go back to verse 3. Look at the end of verse 3. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. God is judging Babylon, Rome, because not just of the kings, but the merchants. They've grown rich from this power. Rome had this insatiable appetite for luxury. And the merchants supplied that hunger with stuff from all over this world. Rome, you see what's happening? Rome, lots of money, like lots of stuff. So if you get a contract with Rome, you start bringing your stuff to Rome, you make a lot of money. That's why the merchants have grown rich. They've grown rich because Rome has the power to buy their goods. Now go over to verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys her cargo anymore. This is on a very literal level, right? When Rome fell, you got to know that Egyptian merchants went out of business, right? You've got to know that all over the world, if, if America goes down, there will be economic catastrophe. We saw this, right, in the recent, the whole banking bubble. The merchants of the earth mourn for her since no one buys their cargo. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles. of. See, this is a list of all the commodities Rome is buying that Rome can't produce. So in verses 1 to 3, we're told that Babylon, the whole system of things in this world that corrupts us and turns our hearts from Christ, it's been judged by God. And God is going to destroy it. Now look at verse 4. Then I heard another voice from the heavens saying, Come out from her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. You take part in her sins? You're going to face her destruction, right? Lest you share in her plagues. Here, the Christians are being addressed, right? In verses 1 to 3, it was pronouncement to the Babylonian system, Rome. But in verse 4, he's saying, Christians, because of that reality, come out from her. Come out from her. Babylon is going down. Why? Because God is king. He will vindicate himself against all who have defied him. Stay out of that building. It is condemned. You don't see the wrecking ball, but it is coming down the freeway. But how? How do we come out of the city? How do you do that? Where could you move and not live in Rome? And we're dealing with a society that's not mobile like ours when we read this letter. So what can he mean? How, how can we come out of the corrupting culture we live in? Look, we live in a corrupt culture like a fish lives in water. Whoever discovered water, it wasn't a fish. Right? How do we come out of this thing we live in? How do we escape? Go back now to Jeremiah chapter 29, the passage that Rebecca read. And look down at verse 4. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, this is the original historical Babylon. The Babylon that was so wicked, she became a metaphor for any system of wickedness. In other words, when we read of the historical Babylon, and then in Revelation 18, when we read of the spiritual Babylon, that spiritual Babylon got the name Babylon because that's what the original physical Babylon was like. So what I want you to see is in verse 4, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into Babylon. God sends his children in Jeremiah into the place, he says in, Re- in Revelation, come out of. How does that fit together? Look at verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is very interesting. You've got to learn to read the Bible as a single book. And if you don't learn to read Revelation echoing from Jeremiah, I mean, you've got to. Because Revelation talks about Babylon and living and how to live. And Jeremiah 29, if you don't read these together, you're going to miss something very important. And and God says not just move into the city. Look, Israel had been captured. They'd been brought to Babylon as exiles, and they were refusing to live in the city. They were living outside on the edges. We're not going into that wicked place. That's evil. They don't have kosher food. They don't follow the Sabbath laws. We can't go in there. We'll be corrupted. And what does God say? Get in the city. And don't just go in there and rent, plant a garden. And don't just plant a garden, marry. By the way, this is, I think, the root of that place where Jesus is asked about marriage in heaven. And he says there's no marriage or being given in marriage. I mean, here he's saying, get in there and marry and give your children in marriage. And not only that, but go way beyond outward actions. Actually seek the peace of the city. Or maybe your Bible said welfare. The actual word, shalom. We've talked about this so much in our church, right? Shalom is the ultimate flourishing. It's flourishing in three relationships. It's a flourishing in your relationship with others, a flourishing in your relationship with God, and a flourishing in relationship with the good earth that God created. In other words, don't rape the land with strip mining. Bless the land. Bless others. Work so that the city flourishes so that it's thriving. And then not only seek that, pray for it. Embed your life in the warp and wolf of the city and work for its prosperity and work for its health and work for its success. Not some city on a hill, not not Christians. Oh, bless a city like M. Night Shyamalan's, you know, the village that's some cloister out in nowhere land where you're building this perfect little life cut off from the world. This is exactly the opposite. Right. This is Christians in Moscow at the height of communism. This is Christians in Berlin under Hitler. This is in New York City. This is in Birmingham. This is not an innocent place. This is right in the, in the teeth of the dragon. Work for the blessing of that place. 
Now go back to Revelation chapter 18. And look at verse 4. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Which is it? Is the Bible contradicting? I mean, we've got to really come to grips with this. I mean, are we supposed to withdraw from our culture? Or are we supposed to dive into our culture? Do we protest our culture? Or do we retreat from any engagement with it? Where do we go? Do we move into a Christian neighborhood? Do we outprice all of the non-Christians? Do we put our money in Christian theme parks? What do we do? The consequences are painful. We mess up on this one. We're going to take part in our sins. And as a result, we're going to share in her plagues. If we don't get out of Babylon, we are doomed. The wrecking ball will destroy us too. And look at verse 6. The punishment is going to be bad. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cut she mixed. Go back to verse 5. For her sins are heaped high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. Which is it? That, that question should send you scouring through the Bible. And at some point it should lead you to John 17. When Jesus prays. I do not ask. That you talking God the father. Take them out of the world. But that you keep them from the evil one. That is the clue that solves the riddle of Jeremiah 29 and Revelation 18. When Revelation warns us, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. The point is that we must come out of the world system. It's thought forms, but we must go back into the world to seek its peace and prosperity. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said every person needs two baptisms. One, a person must be baptized out of the world. But two, every person must be baptized back into the world on mission for God. This is what the letter written in 130 AD is getting at. Look look at the letter on the front of your worship guide. This is a man trying to explain how Christians lived a hundred years after Christ. Because it was perplexing everyone. They are resident, they reside in their respective countries, but only as aliens. They take part in everything as citizens, but put up with everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their home and every home a foreign land. Look, this is a translation of the Greek. You can literally translate it. Every foreign land is the home of their birthplace and every home of their birthplace is a foreign land to them. They find themselves in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. Another way to describe this is that every Christian must have dual citizenship. You must be fully a citizen of this world. And fully a citizen of God's kingdom. And the liberalism, fundamentalism, debates and arguments and fights within Christianity are rife. With messing up on this issue. On one hand, we become so citizens of this world that we forget we're citizens of heaven. And on the other hand, we become so focused on being citizens of heaven that we cloister ourselves away from the world. And we no longer have any input whatsoever. 
It is a Christian thing to want Birmingham and Mountain Brook and Forest Park and Vestavia Hills and Homewood and Liberty Park. It is a Christian thing to want these places to succeed economically, to prosper, to flourish. Our communities and our cities ought to have the best that we can offer economically, socially, medically, aesthetically. Education should be improved because of Christians. Business should be more productive and more efficient and more profitable because of Christians. Farms should produce a greater yield per acre for perpetuity because of Christians. But when it comes to the system of this world, we must learn to see it for what it is and to name it as evil. And that is very hard. Especially when you've lived in Babylon for so long that Babylon is the water you breathe. Look again at Revelation 18 verse 3 at the end of it. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Now look at verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of... How many of those things are in your house right now? I mean, just be honest. Let's go through the list. Gold, silver, jewel, pearl, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of great wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all cinnamon, spice. Here's a hard pill for us to swallow. The bulk of this chapter, it's not about sexual immorality. It's about economic injustice. <laughs> you know, we're, I'm a conservative cat. I believe the Bible says it. It's true. I, I believe in the virgin birth. That's weird. That's weird stuff. All right. And when you go to the kind of churches that I've always been a part of, you're frequently going to hear, you know, these verses about come out from among the people, be separate, be holy. And it's going to be applied to issues of morality. Like getting drunk or stealing or sexual immorality. But the judgment of God in Revelation 18 is primarily. Even when sexual immorality is on the board. It quickly gets overshadowed and forgotten. Because the primary thing that has grieved the heart of God. Even more than the sexual immorality. Is the economic injustice. That's the point at the end of verse 3. Revelation 18. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Will God judge us if we share in the sexual sins of our culture? Yes. Now stay with me because everything has been about this moment. Will God judge us if we avoid the sexual sins? But we imbibe the economic sins of our culture. He'll judge us even more harshly. See, we all like to create our top ten. <laughs> Revelation 18 reminds us that God does not look the other way in the face of economic injustice. And it reminds us that economic injustice is a systemic sin that you participate in. Unaware or aware. 
The economic injustice that Rome was perpetrating is still around today. The rich getting richer on the backs of the poor. The poor being taken advantage of. The rich and the powerful using the labor of the poor to increase their wealth while the poor suffer and go without. Let me just give you a few statistics. According to one source in 1970, the average CEO in the USA was paid 28 times more than the average worker. In 1980, the average CEO was paid 54 times more than the average worker. In 1990, the CEO made 130 times the average worker. In 2000, the the average CEO made 548 times the average worker. When did you protest that? When did you weep over that? You see, the gap between the wealthiest and the poorest has increased dramatically in the past 40 years. Why? Because it is demonic. It is the system of the world to throw a few crumbs to the masses at the end of the table so that those at the top can keep benefiting. Now, notice I said it is always the system of the world to act that way. Revelation 18 calls this system Babylon. Why does it call it Babylon? Because it's not new. It was happening in Rome's day, but it wasn't new. Rome did this, and before Rome, Greece did it. And before Greece, Babylonia did it. That's precisely the point of Revelation 18. This is a key component of the system of, the, of worldliness that fills the air. This is a key way Satan is ravaging this world, and he is historically consistent. But remember Remember, Revelation 18.2 says clearly it's demonic. It is a result of demons and unclean spirits. And Revelation 18.4 says, unless we learn how to serve our culture without getting into bed with our culture, we will share in the judgment. And ignorance will not get you out of the building when the wrecking ball hits. Let me give you just one practical example because all I'm doing tonight is trying to take enough time to paint the big picture, but it's up to us. It's up to a community to learn how to live this out. So if you're hoping I'm going to give practical examples, I'm not. It's up to us to figure out the stuff, but let me give you one area of application just to get us thinking. Economic segregation, because this town is built on it. Over the past 40 years, since the end of segregation, this city is more segregated than it was racially before government-mandated integration. Why? Because of economic segregation. We all know this. Families choose to live in places based on their class and their status. And city zoning and sitting planning support that. When um, John Rishahana was here and he was talking about Rwanda, you remember he said Rwanda was exploding in Christianity and at the same time it was exploding in corruption. And he said, how can that be? How can Birmingham be increasing in economic and racial segregation when it's filled with churches? How can that be? Christians must lead the city of Birmingham to resist public policies that contribute to economic and racial inequalities. 
For example, we must declare that separating prosperous neighborhoods from distressed neighborhoods is wicked. It's demonic. Even if it's done through zoning codes, because that's the spirit of Babylon. We need to identify and suggest and perfect new policies that reduce inequalities. We've got the brain power to do it. We just don't have the moral courage to do it. That's all that's missing. We need a new model of neighborhoods. The model that we live under in Birmingham is killing us. It's, it's impoverishing me and my children to not live around poor people. And it's impoverishing my children to not grow up in a neighborhood that has old people and young people and rich people and poor people and white people. And we have wealth in this city that we are cutting off from one another. We need a model of neighborhoods. It is up to us, to Christians, to recognize the magnitude of this problem and to identify and work for the most effective policies to reduce Income disparities and economic segregation. Now, I know that this can't be solved overnight. And I know that it can't be solved easily. And you know what? If we start working to solve it, we will be persecuted. By those who have vested interest in things staying the way they are. Just like the Christians in Rome at the time that John wrote, just like those Christians, we will face serious consequences if we get serious about getting out of bed with the prostitution of economic segregation. But I just want to remind you, this chapter in the book as a whole reminds us that our hope is in God. And even if we are in the midst of an evil culture that is winning, The judgment on that culture has already been passed. The wrecking ball is coming. God will destroy every one of his enemies and those who are in bed with them. Justice will be served to those who take advantage of the poor, knowingly or not. And that's how the chapter ends. Verse 21. A mighty angel took a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying... So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And the craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill, look, all of the economic instruments, they're going to be destroyed. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of a bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. It's a funny thing to call the might of the American economic system sorcery, isn't it? And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints. And of all who have been slain on the earth. We may be suffering now. And if we choose this route, we will suffer and be persecuted. We will be taken advantage of. But you know what? God will know. He will remember you. He will not let your persecution go unanswered. He will settle accounts. And he will prevail. Let's pray.
Father, for your word, we give you thanks and praise. It's a hard word, hard to accept morally, but also, Father, it's hard for us to just accept it intellectually. How how in the world do we come out of her and yet work for her flourishing? God, I pray that you would help us to be the kind of church that can actually do that. Help us to learn from one another. To listen. Show us, God, where we are corrupt and where we are corrupting others. Whether it is sexually or economically. In Jesus' name, amen.